four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of this war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives so that nation may live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here and thus so far nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we shall take increased devotion to the cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, and that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Hello and welcome to the Enlightened Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Hunt. In this new and exciting episode of Crash Course History, we're going to take a deep dive into, well, we've been pretty subtle about it, the Battle of Gettysburg, one of the largest and most important battles ever fought in American history. Come along. You might learn something in this one. So you've got your hot chocolate. I've got my hot chocolate. you got a candle. I've got my candle. So that sounds to me like the Civil War. <laughs> I can't think of a better segue. <laughs> yeah, because that's what the first thing you think of. When you think hot chocolate, you think Civil War. Not curling up, cozy winter nights, snow gently falling, blood and guts and battle. I mean, is there a more noble thing to talk about on a snowy winter's <laughs> than the fair. sacrifice of thousands of good men and yeah. a just cause. That's fair, I suppose. Well, only one side of the cause was just. Oh, yeah. yeah that's <laughs> that's Gotta clarify. Uni- unilateral. <laughs> Gotta clarify that. Alright, so welcome to Crash Course History 3. Uh, we're specifically going to talk about the Battle of Gettysburg for this. And this Woo-hoo! is definitely going to be a deviation from our World War II talks. But I gotta keep wanna, you guys on your toes. Exactly. I didn't want to bore people by staying on one topic for no. too long. We're certainly gonna circle back to the Second World War. That we aren't done there, but I wanted to get a couple of, you know, one shots in there. And we're also gonna circle back to the Civil War because there's too much goodness there to just cover in one episode. Yeah, exactly. We'll do World War One, we'll do the mm-hmm. Revolution. We are here as history teachers for the layman. So 
Uh, since we're gonna do Gettysburg, we should probably get across why the Civil War was fought in the first place. Mm-hmm. And do you want to take that one? Do you want me to take it? You know, however you like. I feel no, like I'm talking a lot, so why don't you? No, begin? we can. We can both. We can both do it. But basically, since the founding of the country, since the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the winning of this, the American Revolution. The United States were struggling to figure out what the hell they were going to do with this little problem called slavery. Yeah, so um, it's more of an economics issue than a moral issue, where the majority of Southern people actually genuinely favored the systematic slow reduction of slavery. But doing it all at once would destroy the Southern economy. Well, it was also the thing where... It was starting to slowly phase itself out anyway. Until, until the, the Eli Whitney and the invention of the cotton gin. Which made the production of cotton a thousand times more easy, mm-hmm. which brought down the price of cotton. Which, which led mean, to those massive plantations that we've all seen in the movies. Yes, which is pretty awful. So, And if you ever drive through places like South Carolina and Tennessee, some of those plantations are still there. Yep. And not a justification for the South in any ways or means, but I, from several books as well as several professors um, on the Civil War, um, such as Gary Gallagher mm-hmm. and John I McPherson, love his lectures. Are, yeah, some of my favorite guys to talk about it, and they both give a rough, a rough estimate that slavery more than likely probably would have worn itself out in the next 10 to 15 years. Absolutely. Um, it would have just if not sooner. phased itself out on the own. Yeah, it, um, it, it ended up being a hot topic issue because it was obviously a moral abomination to the majority of states. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the way that the Northern Republicans went about it uh. is kind of the issue that... Um, the, the South took up on it. Yeah. And that is not to belittle any kind of uh, the treatment that uh, African Americans suffered at the hands Hot of take. the Southern people. We're anti-slavery. Just, yeah. to, just as a heads up. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the naked racism is very much there as well. But mm-hmm. there are also significant portions of the population that acknowledge the evil of slavery, yes. but they realize that the reality is if you had set uh, slaves yeah. free, then you would have been dooming them to a life that may have been worse yeah. than their the, lives. The ugly economic reality of it would be that freeing the slaves one day and the next day wasn't going to be any better for them, Yeah, because really. you, you are releasing slaves into an economy that is based off free labor, and suddenly people are going to be charging for labor, mm-hmm. and that's how you get the sharecroppers exactly. and all that stuff. Yeah. And that's not to deny yeah. or you know put down the fact that like 12 years of slave shit very mm-hmm. much did happen. Um, yep. But there, there's a lot of nuance to yeah. that. And the, the South was able to use these economic realities and these economic like debate points to justify why oh no it's we can't we can't do it right now and yeah and then they had all the racist arguments of the the black man not being ready for freedom and oh yeah and i should also say that every single person regardless if they were an abolitionist or not yeah was uh extremely racist oh yeah by any terms that we put in today. Yeah. So it's, uh, I find it hard to do as an amateur historian to try to um, 
revile any person um, in public morality of the day, where I um, I try and look at it in their day versus And that's today. what you and I have talked about it. We've talked about it with our history teacher friends. Mm-hmm. It's very much the kind of thing where objectively we can look at something that happened in the past and say, yes, that was bad. Mm-hmm. But you then also have to look at it from the perspective of that time. You're like, okay, was this normal for that time? Was this accepted for that time? Yes. And it's um, it's trying to establish... And it's like, not. Like Columbus. Columbus was reviled in his time. Bingo. That's like the easiest one that I can get yeah. across is like Columbus is just like a giant asshole. So yeah. there are characters... The biggest asshat of his day. Yeah. So there are characters that like Robert E. Lee that we're going to talk about who I would say is more bad than good, mm-hmm. but he's he's not evil. Yeah. Um, and I, I've Most made... people you can't categorize into good or evil. Yeah, and I think Lee Serious is a, quote. Yeah. We're not, the world isn't not divided into, into good, good and people evil. and dead and death, and eaters. death eaters. Yeah, there's and, good and bad in all of us. Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, I'm not defending the South. I think they were abominably wrong mm-hmm. on every incursion. But we and, have to look at why they did what they did and why they believed that in order to fully understand yeah. the way that history goes. Exactly. Um, so uh, the reality is, is that the Civil War was fought over slavery yes and it's people will try for... and say that it's been fought over other things but everything leads back to slavery it's like oh no it was a fight over land i was like yeah whether or not that land was going to be slave state or free yes it is uh undeniable if there's anything i can get across in this podcast mm-hmm. it is that the civil war was fought over slavery yeah. and that is not to say that the union was noble and mighty and demanded the, no, the Union uh, was not fighting to free the slaves. The yeah. Union was fighting to keep the Union together. Exactly. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't come out until, what, January of 1864? Yes, and it was, a, it, it was clearly a, and it only, uh, uh, a war powers. Yeah, it only um, affected the states in rebellion. It didn't affect yeah. like border states like Maryland that stayed in the Union and the, had slavery. Uh, if anybody has seen the movie Lincoln, they're kind of stretching the truth yeah. of how good of a person Lincoln was. And I'm not saying that he was, he's one of the best people to ever live. Yeah. He is a magnificent, But he was also a politician and a realist. Yes. And also he was fighting a war. Yeah. And it was a, clearly a military measure. Absolutely. It was not out of the noble belief that all men are created mm-hmm. equal. Um, Lincoln uh, openly said that to free slaves all at once was mm-hmm. a terrible idea. Yeah. Um, his initial... Um, option was to actually send them i was it Back a colony Africa. on madagascar that was one i think of he was in favor I, I know the of, nazis also said that I, at one point. yes i i could be mistaken but i believe that the, the is there a nation in liberia a nation called Liberia. Yeah. 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 I think that started out as a colony yes. of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, it's yeah, like liberty. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I think that yep, he was, he was in favor it. of repatriate... That's the word patri- I was Repatriation. Yes. Repatriating um, African-American slaves back to Africa. At least initially. Yeah. And, and then some like, of they them realized were, some legit, of them went. Yeah. And a lot of them were like, hey, no, I've been in this country again. Like, mm-hmm. They've been Americanized. Yeah. Yep. I don't know... And because of the way that records weren't kept mm-hmm. and names were given to mm-hmm. the slaves when they came over, most of them, if not all of them, didn't know where in Africa they came from. They mm-hmm. didn't speak their tribal languages or know their connections back in their African homeland. Yeah. So um, basically, um, 
it's a complex issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and war is rarely fought over simplistic things. Uh, if that's one thing we can get across to you, that's, that's very big. Yeah. Um, so, uh, actual war begins to break out because of tensions that have arisen during, is it, um, Franklin Pierce? Is he the one before Lincoln or is he two before Lincoln? I think he was a couple before Lincoln. And then who was the one right before Lincoln? Was that Benjamin Harrison? No. Benjamin, um. Was he after? Harrison came later. Rutherford B. Hayes? No, he came after Grant. Grant. I don't know. This is where it gets tricky, where I don't know all... I know his... I don't know my presidents as well as I should. Yeah. Uh, I know Franklin Pierce was either the one before, or he was the one... Uh, or he was two before. James Buchanan, and that's who I was ah, thinking Buchanan. of. Because okay, Buchanan so... didn't do anything about it. He yeah, kind of just so, let it uh, fester. What happened is the um, bleeding Kansas, yep. which it all uh, inflamed people's ideas of what to go yeah. through so basically kansas was it was debated whether it was going to be a slave state or a free state mm-hmm. and they weren't quite sure which so a bunch of uh crazy southerners decided to get in their heads to go and destroy any of the wild republican mm-hmm. uh 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 what's the abolitionists word? yes thank you yep um abolitionists that were settling yeah um and basically just Try and wipe them out. I was going to say, it was yeah. just, it was terrorism. Yeah, well, because that it was, was it part of the Kansas-Nebraska Act that can, residents of Kansas were going to vote in a referendum as yes. to whether it was yep. going to be a slave state or a free state? Yep. So you had Southerners and Northerners coming into the state. Basically carpetbagging. Exactly, so state. that they could yeah. then vote in the referendum and mm-hmm. try and sway the decision. But then it, you also had massive outbreaks of violence. It was... John Brown... Did yes. He, yeah, yeah. He first so came to the scene. There were several raids throughout um, the entirety of uh, Kansas that uh, led to the deaths of a couple hundred people, considering the population size that was huge. Yep. It was just, it was like a full on war between the people. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, like, it was just basically terrorism. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so what, uh, this divided the nation even further, and people were trying to decide... You have Harper's Ferry that happens. ...what to do. And then John Brown comes into it, who is a wild abolitionist with a pile of sons. And we're they also go wild through, abolitionists. Yeah, and they basically go through, lead a raid against the Southerners, mm-hmm. and then just murder five men with a claymore after he captured them and yeah. promised them, like, safe conduct. Yeah. Um, so escapes. Yes, he escapes, and then um, Harper's Ferry was a um, it was military. An in Virginia, yeah. Yes, it was a military. Um, what do you call it? Armory. Yeah, it was an armory. Um, in Virginia, where a bunch of arms were kept, and he basically his entire plan was to raid the armory and start a um, slave revolt. Yep. And or begin a race war. Yeah. And coincidentally enough, Robert E. Lee was the colonel in charge. Um, I believe I believe he was the colonel in charge when John Brown was apprehended at Harper's Ferry, and he, he was, was and he was present at his execution. He was, as were several other um, leading yeah. um, Confederate generals it's always before they were Confederate generals. Fascinating to me, and it's one of the things that is so fascinating to me about the Civil War is the relationships between the leading officers. Absolutely. Um, and that's if I can recommend any book series to all listeners here, it's going to be the Jeff Shara books on and his father Michael Shara 
on the Civil War, both Eastern and Western Front. And just, like, between Longstreet and uh, Ulysses Grant, between all of these leading men in both armies who have these very close friendships with the other side. Who was the uh, Mexican-American war general? Zachary Taylor. The other one. Oh, Winfield Scott. Thank you. Yeah, because then you have Winfield Scott Hancock, mm-hmm. who is best friends with Louis Armistead, who is a Confederate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the it, and that's kind of what it comes down to. It really was brother fighting brother. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, it's often said that about the Civil War, and it's, you know, you can consider it some historical romanticism. Right. But it's, the literal, it's not an exaggeration. I was going to say, the literal fact is is that the, a lot of the leading generals and commanders of the Civil War were friends and mm-hmm. had gone to school together. Um, you know, James Longstreet was best man at Ulysses, Ulysses S. Grant's, Grant's wedding. Yeah. Um, Winfield Scott Hancock and Louis Armistead were best friends and were both stationed in California together. Both mm-hmm. of them were very seriously wounded at Gettysburg. Uh, uh, Winfield Scott's protege was Robert E. Lee. Yeah. Um, Robert E. Lee was offered the command of the Potomac Army mm-hmm. before when the Civil War broke out. So we should probably get into the actual outbreak yes. of war before we get into all the... Uh, the different connections. Yes, and the different battles and whatnot. Yeah. So um, point being is um, the war begins with the firing on Fort Sumter. Mm-hmm. So Lincoln had basically cooked the books to make it look like the South was starting the war, mm-hmm. when in reality Lincoln knew war was going to yeah. happen. Chose not he... to abandon Fort Sumter, chose not to... Uh, so the South basically signed their own Declaration of yeah, Independence in saying that they created their own um, Confederate States of America. Yep. So uh, what they demanded is that since they were now a foreign nation to the United States, is that all the United States troops mm-hmm. that were um, settled in forts along the United States, they surrender their arms and return to back to Union the Union ground. Yeah. in the north. Fort Sumter is in South Carolina. So and, in, yes. In the harbor. So uh, Fort Sumter is what happened. They demanded the surrender of Fort Sumter. Uh, Lincoln decided that he would refuse to abandon it. They were given an ultimatum that they would fire on the fort if any attempts to mm-hmm. um, keep the troops, you know, sustained with um, weapons, ammunition, and food. Yep. Um, so they encircled the fort, basically tried to starve it out, and Lincoln made several attempts to try and um, uh, not send more troops in, but mm-hmm. um, try, and, try and continue the supply. So the South fired on a United States fort, which began the war. Yep. Uh, the f- uh, we should definitely talk... The, the two people or I should say the four people that we really want to talk about for personalities that shaped the Civil War are going to be Lincoln and Grant Yep. and Lee and... Longstreet? No, not Longstreet. Jefferson the, Davis? Yes. Oh, Jeff- okay. <laughs> it's Jefferson Davis and Lee. I didn't know who you were leading for. No, I'm like, no, oh, yes, the, Jefferson Davis. No, the people that shaped yeah. it. So the funniest part um, and the, the real irony of the Civil War is that Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, on paper, were the exact people yeah. that you want running a war for you. Mm-hmm. They are two um, literal American heroes at this point in time. Mm-hmm. 
Um, both of them were decorated for gallantry yep. in the Mexican-American War. Yep. I believe Winfield Scott's daughter married him? Something, something to that Mary effect. Who? Um, Jefferson Davis? Jefferson Davis. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I he know married, that. Yeah, he might have been Bragg's daughter. Yeah. Regardless. Yeah. Somebody, he, he was married to another major yeah. Union General's daughter. Yep. Um, and it might have been Zachary Taylor, too. I don't remember. But point being, he had been Secretary of War yeah. um, beforehand. Jefferson Davis had mm-hmm. been. And he was a Southern racist, but he was literally, like, the most qualified man. He actively had more experience by himself mm-hmm. than any other general in the Civil War <laughs> up until that point, excepting Winfield Scott. Yeah. So... Um, the irony is, is that, uh, Lincoln is the president of the United States and Lincoln has no military experience aside from, I think he spent a couple of months in the Black Hawk War. Yeah. Cause he lived up in the, uh, he was in Kentucky. Illinois. I think, yeah, I think he was born in Kentucky and then grew up in Illinois for the most part. Yes. Um, so he, he, I think he was like a captain of a, of a militia company. Mm-hmm. And uh, if that, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. he saw no combat, and as he said, uh, he had, he did not think it constituted any kind of real yeah um, so service. It, it, he was basically a, a backwoods country lawyer, yeah, who kind of um, made his living. Mm-hmm. Um, so you cannot pick a person like less likely to win a war against him, and then. Their two selected generals could not be more perfect opposites yeah. as well. And Grant doesn't even really come into the picture majorly in the East until after. Yeah, I was going to say. So um, Grant is somebody that will definitely spend a, a lot ton of time, of time on. About. But he's in the West for most of yeah, the beginning of the war. Yeah, I was going to say. So we talk about the victory at Vicksburg. And yeah, that's totally that is Grant's victory. Ulysses S. Grant's victory. So we should definitely talk about... Um, him just so we can spend more time on Robert E. Lee, who's mm-hmm. one of our main characters here. Oh yeah. Um, so Grant is uh, born son of a tanner, who is kind of like the weirdest collection <laughs> of personality, where he abhors the sight of blood. He is, um, you know, kind of shy. He he's famed for being um, one of the greatest writers that West Point has ever known. His father was very ambitious for him and sought to really move him up in the world. Mm-hmm. And Grant didn't want anything to do with that. He wanted to basically just, you know, yeah. be, a, be like a school teacher was his plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up getting uh, more or less forced into West Point. Yeah. Where um, it's, uh, historians have often kind of belittled his career at West Point. And if you consider his West Point class, which is filled with Mexican-American war heroes as well as um, very skilled um, strategists and tacticians Mm -hmm. of the Civil War, Grant is, I believe, in basically middle of the road, maybe a little bit better. Which is saying something considering the geniuses that were in class with him. Exactly. He he set all kinds of records for horsemanship, Mm -hmm. and uh, his mathematics scores were unbelievable. Yep. So they openly said, they openly had offered him, or at least planned to offer him um, teaching posts Mm -hmm. for um, teaching at the college as a mathematics instructor. 
and that's kind of where he was leaning, but he ended up um, being put in the infantry, and then the Mexican-American War broke out. Yep. Uh, he served with gallantry. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe he was decorated for it. I think he ended up as a captain. Okay. And then um, after the war, he ended up in California, where he was discharged for supposedly um, intoxication. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is believed that he struggled with alcoholism yeah. uh, most of his life. Mm-hmm. So he ended up um, kind of dirt poor, nowhere to go. He ended up as a like a shopkeeper yeah. and was pretty hard on his luck. Um, he was doing like relatively okay by the outbreak of the Civil War, but he had gone through stretches yeah. of very serious poverty where he was literally mm-hmm. selling firewood on the side yeah. of the road. Married to the daughter of a very wealthy southern slave owning family yeah we should point out See, he um, was a while he was his he came from an abolitionist family and he himself was opposed to slavery but he i don't believe his parents were actually abolitionists mm-hmm. I well think, I, I don't think they were like letter no, writing they, they were like anti-slavery i was gonna say i think they were typical northern anti-slavery mm-hmm. um they weren't wildly no. anti-slavery though so uh, Grant actually, from his wife and his wife's family, inherited mm-hmm. um, several slaves. And part of the reason that he was in poverty was that he uh, refused to yeah. uh, accept his slaves. And yeah. he actually ended up freeing them. Yeah. Um, much to his own detriment, which yeah. is just a mark of how good, of good a person, person he was. He was. Yeah. Um, but he ended up working for um, in Galena. Ohio as a leather store salesman, Mm -hmm. more or less. He kept abreast of politics and kind of was definitely on the Republican side of things. But he wasn't. When the war broke out, he was right there. And he uh, signed right up. They, I think they offered him a colonelcy, mm-hmm. and then very quickly he moved up yeah. through the ranks yeah. um, after coming back through the army. Yep. Um, but he was kind of quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, unassuming, uh, he was short, thin, uh, he... Didn't really keep his uniform too well, he was always kind of slouchy and Yeah, he, he took off, uh, after Zachary Taylor, who yeah. was one of the main generals of, um, the Mexican-American War, who didn't really care for uniforms The whole and pageantry whatnot. and appearance and everything. Yeah, it was, it, you know, he had a dirty uniform, smoked cigars constantly. Yeah. Um, and looked haggard most of his life. Yeah. And struggled with alcohol. Yep. So he, he, he kind of a colorful character. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so that brings us to... The polar opposite. Yeah. Of Robert E. Lee. The Marble Man. Stately Southern Gentleman, related to George Washington through his, ma- through his wife. Yes, his wife Mary Custis was uh, descended. Yeah, of... she was a... She was the daughter of one of Martha Custis Washington's sons, I believe. His wife was, a, was like a step-grandchild or a step-great-grandchild. Of... Yes, so Washington's stepdaughter's daughter. Stepson. Stepson? She was, it was Mary Custis. And Martha was Martha Custis Washington. Okay, yes, that does make sense. Yeah. Okay. I thought for some reason she only had daughters. No, she had a son. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so his, Lee's father-in-law was either the stepson or step-grandson mm-hmm. of George Washington. So, uh, Robert E. Lee is literally, his father was an American hero. Like Horace Harry Lee. 
yeah, Light Horse Harry Lee, who's famed for all kinds of exploits in the South against uh, British regulars during the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, uh, I believe, a leading politician, too, at one point in time. Yeah, but then kind of fell from... Pat- he fell from grace. I believe he may... There are questions whether or not he may have contracted um, syphilis. Um, and he basically ended up becoming bankrupt and yeah. dying in the Caribbean. Yeah, dying in disgrace. And Yeah, I think he left his family, too. Yeah, and, um, yeah, so. Yeah. So Robert E. Lee was always very aware of propriety and appearance yeah, and was, expectation. Was, yes, very conscientious of yeah. how um, he looked and felt yep. and whatnot. Um, so, at the... He... Was born Southern Plantation family. Yep. He uh, was born into moderate. I won't. I don't want to say poverty. No, but, but he, much like much of his wealth came from his wife's. I was gonna say he was born into probably you know formerly high class, what is now would be considered uh, lower middle class yeah. to working class. Yeah. Uh, he enrolled at. Um, West Point, and he was the top student in his yep. class. He, he was, was the commandant brilliant. for a while, right? Yep. He had uh, almost no demerits against his mm-hmm. record. I think he had one, which is unheard of. Yeah. I think he held the record for the least for a long period yeah. of time at West Point. Yep. He was in the uh, engineers. Yes, he became a military engineer, helped build bridges all through uh, New York. He uh, was stationed in Texas, mm-hmm. part of the cavalry regiment out there. Yep. He... Um, Served with honor in the Mexican-American War. I've yeah, many of our... I was going to say, he was a huge hero. Yeah. Um, he helped lead, I believe, a flanking... Against Veracruz, was that yes, it? Yes, I believe that's what... It, I want to say it was a, um amphibious attack, too. Kind of, yeah. As amphibious as you can get in the 1840s. Exactly. So there, uh, there was some attempt at it. Yeah. But he was basically considered, like, the right-hand yeah. man of Winfield mm-hmm. Scott at yep. this time. And he was also... I mean, by the time the Civil War breaks out, he's in his late 50s he's very much like an older gentleman i don't think he was late 50s i think he was early 50s i don't know if he was that because he, he he only died a couple of years after the civil war ended yeah i believe i he think he was died, in his early 60s i believe he died in his mid 60s i want to say he was 51 to 53 range i think when the war Maybe. broke out because i think he wasn't um he wasn't yeah crazy crazy old at the beginning um he was like 55 maybe okay Middle of the road, yeah. He died in, he died in 1870. Yeah. So, uh, mid-50s... But, like, uh, still, I mean, the 1800s. He's at the end of his career. It's yeah. not expected that he's gonna... It was very unexpected for him to become the commander-in-chief of the Army of Virginia. So, uh, it was not, actually. So, he was married to uh, Custis. Yep. And that's where basically he got all of his money. She had the plantation that is actually now Arlington National Cemetery yep. in Washington D.C., which uh, was taken Confis- and then uh, confiscated by the government yeah. and repurposed. As were, as were as were many of the lands of. Yeah, well, that's what happens when yeah. you rebel. Exactly. No, that's what I'm saying. It's like yeah, one of the consequences at the end of the war was that a lot of these leading figures lost their. Yeah. Their land and everything. So yeah, mm-hmm. Arlington National Cemetery is built on the land that was Robert E. Lee's home. Mm-hmm. He was a. Slave. I believe there's a. Is there a George Washington Museum there too now? Where the house was. Uh, when I went, I didn't see okay. one. There might be. I could be mistaken on that. Um, he was a slaveholder. Yep. Um, he was not radically 
um, democratic in his politics. I should probably clarify, Republicans at this point in time were founded as an abolitionist party. Yeah. Democrats were much more um, on the southern bent and state rights. Yeah. Um, hold over things. Yeah, so it, not the Democrats and Republicans that we have today. Yeah. I would say that um, Lee was probably leaned more Democrat, but he was very moderate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not... He was, de- he was certainly not a Republican. No. But um, by all accounts, he treated his slaves fairly well. Yeah, he was, the he time was probably bearing. as moderate as we can say where he held slaves but he wasn't one of the um he wasn't like a a a massive 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 plantation owner he had a large number of slaves but not as many as some of the like south carolina or georgia plantations yep but irregardless he um kind of tried to stay out of politics. Um, I I think he probably had a similar personality to Eisenhower or Washington, Mm -hmm. where they kind of had cultivated this image of this, you know, uh, perfect man, this uh, uh, Cincinnati. Southern gentleman. Yeah, not Southern gentleman. It was just kind of this like, oh, you know, like I'm just a good soldier. I just do what I'm told. But in reality, they were very conniving, politically aware, and uh, very astute in how their image was Mm -hmm. done. And they they weren't above some skullduggery, Mm -hmm. um, as long as it wasn't connected back to them, (laughs) which uh, I think is is very clear of both Lee and um, Washington, and certainly Eisenhower. So uh, Lee was... Uh, an engineer. Uh, he served in a couple of outposts, putting down um, uh, like um, mild border wars and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, but not nothing major after the Mexican American War for probably a good fifteen twenty years, yeah. where he he did nothing. He rose very slowly in the ranks. The peacetime army. There wasn't a lot of yeah. Um, it's room. a lot easier to get promotions in wartime, but then getting them made permanent yeah. is also tricky. So he he basically uh, was like the star child of mm-hmm. the American army. Yep. But there wasn't any war on right. for a significant period of time. So there was a good 15, 20 years where there was just nothing. Yeah. So uh, it, same thing as Grant, who kind of got bundled out of the army, where you're just kind of sitting around with nothing to do. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, it's not cohesive for rising stars and genius and, you know, a very small army that doesn't do much Mm -hmm. doesn't have a lot of room for promotion. Right. So a lot of the army was um, older by this point in time. The average age for commanders and generals was significantly older than it should have been. So um, at this point in time, um, we get to the war is about to break out and people are well aware of oh, what been, is going to happen. it has been brewing and bubbling and boiling for quite a while up till now oh, yeah so um at the outbreak of war um after the firing on sumter uh the i don't know what you would call him commander of the army general of the united states army winfield scott yeah because he 
Was it chief? Was it chief of staff? Is that what they were? Um, I, something. Yeah, because it's like he wasn't the secretary of war, secretary of defense. No, no I don't even wasn't... know if he was a secretary. No, just he, like head of, he was like head of the war department. Yeah, he yeah. might have been head of the war department. Either so, way. Uh, Winfield Scott was one of the uh, the other major generals yes. of the Mexican-American War, but he also served in half a dozen other ones. Yeah. I believe he served with distinction in like the War of 1812. Yeah. Like, this guy is fucking old. Mm, old fuss and feathers, they call him. Yes. He was very... Uh, pomp circumstance. He always yep. had the uniform and all the medallions yep. and could not be more about it. That being said, he was actually like a genius. Oh yeah, fantastic general. Um, and it's widely acknowledged that had he died under any other circumstance other than the Civil War, he would have been lauded as one of America's greatest generals. Yeah. He, he fought in every conflict there was mm-hmm. up until the Civil War. Yeah. Um, and he did so Brilliantly. He, yeah. he was a fabulous, fabulous general. And his right-hand man had always been Lee. Yep. So, when the war broke out and the formation of armies began, the army obviously started to have volunteers and mm. build up these massive armies again. So, rapid promotions started to happen. Mm. And as Grant went from a captain to a colonelcy, Lee was offered the generalship of the army of... The Potomac. I don't even know if it was called the Army of the Potomac initially, mm-hmm. but it was basically they raised an army in defense of uh, Washington, basically Washington, with the intent to move south into yeah. Virginia. Um, Lee was offered it. Yep. And first, Lee, he was their first choice. He was the first choice to lead the army, and he uh, actually turned it down. Yep. Which was a surprise to everyone. Turned it down. Resigned his commission in the army. Yep. And basically. Became a traitor to the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had sworn an oath to the United States and raised arms against her. Yeah. Um, As did every Confederate general at the time. Most, if not all of them. No, I won't say all of them. Many of them were commissioned officers in the, is commissioned officers in the United States Army who resigned and then received commissions in the Confederate armies. Yep. Uh, they strongly believed in states' rights and they basically thought that the majority um, of Republicans in the North were going to take away states' rights and basically use the North to bully the South into doing everything that it wanted with Mm -hmm. the South not getting enough of a say. So uh, with states' honor on the table, uh, Lee is described as saying simply he was a Virginian first and American second. Yeah. Um, Back in the 1800s, it was much more like we were a collection of separate countries. Yeah. That joined together like the European Union opposed to one America as a whole, which is basically the outcome of the Civil War is that we were one country afterwards. Yep. Um, So uh, Lee uh, resigned his commission, um, did not take up the offer for um, the generalship of the United States Army Mm -hmm. and uh, went and basically volunteered to Jefferson Davis and... um, the Confederate capital of Richmond. Thank you. Um, Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. So uh, the Confederates basically agreed on Virginia being um, the main capital because Virginia was the biggest state. Yeah, um, and it also makes it then makes sense why so much of the major fighting is centered in Virginia, Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, kind of along the Potomac River. Because it is those two capitals that are really just a stone's throw from each other of Richmond and Washington, Mm D.C. So, 
what ends up happening is uh, Lee is put basically is like uh, the main advisor to mm-hmm. Jefferson Davis for military matters, but he's an advisor. He's yeah. not a field general. Right. So uh, the first battle is the battle of the first battle of Bull Run yeah, first in the South is known as the first battle of Manassas. Yep. Um, it is a complete disaster for the Union. They get their asses handed to them. And then um, in several other battles mm-hmm. resulting, I think the Union had one victory, and it was a mild victory. Yeah. I forget which one it was. I don't even remember. Yeah. It's basically two years of this, them just getting their asses handed to them time after time after time. They have one victory, Yeah, and it's a minor one. Yeah, and but like to the point that it's not until Gettysburg, it is not until July of 1863, when Lee invades Pennsylvania. Yeah. So, uh, Lee takes over control of the Southern Army in the East after General um, Johnston is... Sent out West. uh, Sent out West. He was injured in, I think, the one victory that Mm -hmm. the Union had. And so, Jefferson Davis sent out Lee. Um, So, after Johnston was wounded, who was the... uh, Johnston was the original commander of... Yeah. We'll uh, clarify Albert Sidney Johnston, not Joe Johnston, because names are confusing. Yeah, there are several um, American generals that have the same name. Yeah. But um, the commander of the initial army was Johnston. After Johnston was wounded, after the first couple of battles, um, it ended up being Lee took command. And Lee kind of saw this as his moment of destiny. This is what he wanted in the first place. Once again, he is somebody who tries to play off like, oh, I would never do such a thing. I don't really want it. Mm -hmm. And then when his moment came, he did everything in his power to try and get the job. Um, He ended up getting the job. And funnily enough, he was actually known as uh, Granny Lee at first because he um, started uh, immediately digging defensive structures and trenches and whatnot, which is kind of a hallmark of warfare that's 40, 50 years away, which is just an eye into the genius of Lee. He knew what defensive works could do. Yes, as an engineer, he had the experience of building these redoubts and everything. Exactly. Um, so uh, people kind of, uh, and his own soldiers, made fun of him. Yeah. Um, but what very quickly developed after that is the Rommel of America. He had this cult of personality. He had this, like, Lee could do no wrong. As soon as he won the like respect and loyalty and love of his soldiers and subordinates, that was it. It was insanity. Yeah. He was Patton before Patton. Yeah. He was Patton's idol, actually. Yeah. But uh, it, it's... He he had a well-oiled fighting machine. Yeah, he had his two right-hand men of Longstreet and Stonewall Jackson. Who we're definitely going to get into, but we uh, the, the army that Lee whipped into shape mm-hmm. very quickly became probably the best army in the world. Yeah. Uh, in in 1861, I think that maybe the Prussian army yeah. is the only thing that maybe could have given it a uh, run for its money. Yeah. But otherwise, I would say that Lee's army could have taken on any army in Europe, yeah. any army in Asia, South America, so yeah. on and so forth. Because they weren't supposed to do that well. No. Like, this, uh, the North had all of the industry, all of the like armaments. It was expected that this was just going to be a quick couple of months issue yeah, very much everyone anticipated the war being um a couple of 
weeks, mm -hmm. maybe months at the most, maybe a year. But the, yeah, it, was, it broke out in what? 1861? Yeah, but I'm trying to think of month-wise. Oh, I have no idea. I don't know. I feel like it was over the summer, maybe the early fall. Mm -hmm. But it was very much like, oh yeah, we'll be home by Christmas. Yep. This will be over by Christmas. Um, it is absurd. Yeah. Uh, Lee's deafness and genius for command is... I... I would say up until this point in American history, unparalleled. I would say Absolutely. if you look at it legitimately, I would say that Lee is a better general than Washington. Yeah. Hmm? Absolutely. Um, not that Washington is, shouldn't be Laden isn't a genius himself, but even Winfield Scott couldn't yeah. do what so Lee what did. what Lee was able to do in like six months. Yeah. It, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, he won a startling series of victories in the yep. seven-day campaign yep. in uh, Chattanooga. In mm. not Chattanooga, um, Shenandoah. Uh, yes, well, Shenandoah in the Valley. show in the Shenandoah Valley with yeah. um, Jackson. Jackson. Uh, he also won um, Chancellorsville. Yep, Fredericksburg. And Fredericksburg are. Massive, massive defeats. Massive, and those defeats that lead up to it's it's the true genius. Yeah. Um. The there was a third battle, Antietam, mm -hmm. which was uh, technically a strategic victory for the Union. Um, in reality, it was uh, just a brutal like slugfest. Yeah. Between the two armies, and uh, it was just ridiculous. Yeah. But, a lot of, um, basically, uh, Lee was brilliant at, uh, his use of cavalry scouting, oh, God. um, using the, the manipulation of troops and regiments yep. to quickly do, it's just brilliant tactically. Yeah. Uh, strategically, he was good. He yeah. was very good, but tactically he was basically unparalleled. Yeah. That being said, he was going up against a series of complete and utter idiocy. Oh, absolute ineptitude uh who was the first general in george charge? b mcclellan uh was mcclellan in charge first i think so yeah he was little napoleon yeah so um mcclellan got the job after um after lee gave it up yeah lee, lee gave it up and mcclellan was uh basically built a brilliant yes army. he should have been fantastic yeah he was by all by, by all accounts by all like so Data on the chart. Yep. Should have been amazing. He was a, a brilliant West Point leader, basically yep. just Boy Scout. He was perfect, wonderful, basically Northern Gentry. Yes. Um, what ended up happening is that he built the army, where mm -hmm. he logistically was able to organize it. Uh, it like grew to like fifteen times the size yeah, of the peacetime like, he had army. Like two hundred thousand active. Um, yeah, Soldiers. oh, and that was probably only in the East alone. Yeah, oh yeah, just in the Army of the Potomac. So, uh, he, McClellan literally was able to whip everything yeah. into shape. Uh, what ended up happening was McClellan just kind of shit his pants every single time. It's like the kindest thing that you can say about him is that he loved the Army too much to sacrifice it. He couldn't send it to fight. But it was also, he was always convinced that somehow Lee outmatched him like 10 to 1. And he was always waiting on reinforcements. 
And he was always just waiting for that that one last thing to fall if into place. If you look at any one of his battles, mm-hmm. uh, every single time, all he talks about is, well, you know, um, Lee has, you know, 100,000 men right there. And he has I'm, maybe 30,000. Yeah, and he had a fraction of the number yeah. that, and even intelligence reports had reported the accurate numbers or even inflated numbers. Yeah, and but not as inflated no... as McClellan made them. Yes, so McClellan... Kind of just slowly after these losses, Lincoln kind of realized what he had in McClellan, which yeah. was a, a great low, strategist, but a coward is kind of what it boils down. I don't to. even know if we can call him a coward because I think I would go as far as to say that I. Would, I feel it, like his previous serve. I don't. I don't know if I would go so far as to call him a coward. I think he was terrified of failure, and I think that made. I think that that, that is what I would classify as a coward. Okay. If you were a, if you were confident enough to accept command, then mm-hmm. you need to be confident enough to, yeah, to accept then... loss. Yeah, and you would need to make decisions that are depending on men's yeah. lives. I just feel like coward is too harsh. No, I feel like he. I think he was a cowardly commander. Okay, I, I genuinely maintain that because it is there's nothing. Um, to be said for, uh, you know, like Winfield Scott uh, at and Meade in, was it Chancellorsville? Winfield Scott Hancock? Yes. Yeah. At, at Chancellorsville. I think so. They got their axes handed. Oh, yeah. But at no point in time were they doing the wrong thing. They were do- yeah. attempting the correct thing. Yes. And failed. Yeah. Every single time you look at McClellan, it's sheer incompetence, and it's the fact that he didn't have the balls to continue. Mm-hmm. Okay, And yeah. it's, it's simple. Yeah. And every commander after him showed that. I mean, Meade was even a good commander up until Chancellorsville. Right. Well, he wasn't even in charge in charge. He was only in charge for the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm sorry, not Meade. Hooker? Who, uh, not, uh, who, Burnside. Burnside. Burn, oh, Ambrose I'm sorry, Burnside, I'm yes. Of Burnside. Um, I, like, I, gotta, I, I give Ambrose Burnside a little bit of like forgiveness because he was violently concussed. Yes. He had a house fall down on him. Yeah. But well, he should have relinquished command, and he didn't do that. I thought that was Hooker. I think it was Burnside, who the cannonball hit the house and it collapsed I'm, on him. I'm pretty sure that was Hooker. I thought that was Burnside. Pretty sure that was Hooker, because uh, Burnside was when they were trying to cross the river, and he was the mud march. Okay. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. So I'm Bur- going to have to double check myself yeah, after, so, after we finish this, this recording. Yeah. Um, so, basically, the next set of generals that come up is just, uh, just a quick succession. Uh, yeah, a quick succession of disaster after disaster. Yeah. Um, I believe it's at... Can you look up Chancellorsville yeah. and Fredericksburg? Yeah, figure I, out which one's I, I, Yeah, they're quick battles, one right after the other. Yeah. And they they're both in May or June. Yeah, and they just... I constantly get befuddled by them. Yeah. Uh, Antietam was the big... Uh, first of the bunch mm-hmm. of the three battles before yeah. Gettysburg okay. that were major battles. So Antietam was Lee after fighting a series of defensive battles mm-hmm. in Virginia to keep the Union out, decided that he was going to threaten Maryland, which was a uh, border state, yep. which was up in the It was still air. part of the Union at the time. It was part of the Union, but it was swaying whether or not mm-hmm. it wanted to yeah. have... Um, Basically, there were a lot of Southern people that were pro-slavery there, so Lee figured he could influence them as well as uh, stop living off the harvest of Virginia because all of Virginia's plow lands and supplies had been destroyed. Yeah. So Chancellorsville was April 30th to May 6th, 1863. Joe Hooker was in charge during Chancellorsville. Mm -hmm. 
the Battle of Fredericksburg. That was the river crossing one, I believe. So Fredericksburg was a straight charge across the river. Fredericksburg was the year before. It was December of 1862. Okay. So that's what, uh, yes, because... Burnside's was in charge then. Yes. Uh, Jackson died at Chancellorsville. Yes. And Fredericksburg was the river crossing barrel that Burnside was in charge of. So after uh, McClellan got bagged after Antietam because it was just a series of incompetence by the Union side, they had like triple the numbers. Mm-hmm. Somehow Lee still was able to absolutely massacre them. Yeah. But in the end, uh, Lee retreated across the river and uh, McClellan did not have the balls to pursue. Yep. This finally gave Lincoln the opportunity to sack George B. McClellan who, ironically, would actually run as a Democrat in the presidential election. Couple of, yeah, he, he ran <laughs> against Lincoln in the 1864 election. He did. Um, Unsuccessfully, as we should know. yes. Spoiler alert. Um, so, uh, but the army actually loved McClellan because yes. he was able to set up the army so well. Yeah. But all of McClellan's underlings, like the immediate ones, were pretty incompetent. Oh, yeah. So first, I believe the job went to Burnside. Sure. First one of the major battles. The ones, yeah, the ones that I remember. Yeah, McClellan, yes. then Birdside, then Hooker. Yes. And then after Hooker is Meade, and Meade gets command of the army literally on the eve of the Battle of Gettysburg. I think he, did they relieve McClellan and bring McClellan back at one point? I believe so. Yeah. So, uh, but basically it was Antietam that was the final straw. Yeah. So the head of the Union Army became um, George... I'm sorry, not George Meade. Um, the head of the Union Army became Ambrose Burnside, who is where, funnily enough, sideburns come from. <laughs> he is that classic 1800s, like, yeah. mustachioed, ridiculous, like, he has a beard but no middle. Mm-hmm. And it looks absurd. Um, that's where sideburns come from. But uh, he had actually led an amphibious assault of a southern stronghold in Virginia or South Carolina beforehand. That was very successful, but when it came to, they realized he was kind of the next option in line of command. Everyone kind of like looked around and was like, well, he's a nice guy. Everybody gets along with him, and he had a very successful victory. But other than that, he was kind of a follower, not it really was, a leader. He's the stereotypical, he's a good divisional commander. He's not a good person to be in charge. Yeah. He's and, good at taking orders and then going from there and being yes. able to like make decisions kind of for his smaller grouping. Yeah. He wasn't good at being the head person. Uh, He was basically a nice guy, so no one could really think of why not to bring him in. So what ended up happening is uh, the Battle of Fredericksburg was a disaster for the Union, so we chucked him to the side. Then we got uh, Hooker, which is where the Hooker term comes for, for prostitutes, actually. Because he had a bunch of camp followers around him and was a wild drinker and braggadocio, gambler, um, all kinds of... Which is why I always found it very funny that the Massachusetts State House has a general hooker entrance. Uh, And yet not a high-class hooker entrance. Yeah, this is true. Um, He is uh, actually a pretty effective general. Yeah, he was like... Uh, I was going to say tactically. Uh, I don't think his men particularly liked him. Um, the peop- uh, his, his immediate underlings didn't like him because he was kind of a scumbag. Mm-hmm. Um, but what ended up happening is the Battle of Chancellorsville, which is considered uh, Lee's like greatest victory by far. 
was he was able to basically run rampant around a much larger um, Union army. He divided his forces in half and was able to crush them. But what ended up happening is throughout all of these battles, Lee had been relying on two division commanders um, who were geniuses in their own right, which was James Longstreet and Stonewall Jackson. Uh, Stonewall Jackson was actually killed by his own men accidentally returning from a scouting mission at night. He yeah. was shot in the leg. No. Uh, arm. He was shot in the arm. Yeah, they had to amputate the arm and he ended up catching pneumonia. Yes. So he died several weeks after the battle, but it was it was the, the wound and the, the trauma of the wound that led to him getting sick and dying. Yep. Um, actually, I should say he relied on three division commanders, I should say, actively, because we completely forgot about Jeb Stewart. Right, he's the head of cavalry, so, so being uh, his eyes and ears in the countryside. Yes, so uh, J.E.B. Stewart is uh, the flashy, dashing, mm-hmm. Robin Hood cavalry commander of the South, yeah. who was famous for riding his army entirely around, around the, the Union Army, yes, uh, and then returning safely. So, uh, he was actually a brilliant cavalry commander, but he was the eyes and ears of Lee's yep. um, troops. So, it's right after Chancellorsville, every single time the Union Army has gotten the living shit kicked out of it. Uh, it is tired, there are draft riots, um, there, Lincoln is trying to get more troops into uh, the army, uh, Vicksburg is able to hold out against Grant at this point in time, which was the key to the Mississippi River in the Western Campaign, and the Eastern Campaign has been nothing but a series of shocking defeats. So, next on the table is Lee is going to try to advance north once again, like Antietam. He is trying to, his objectives are to drive north, try and live off the bounty of Pennsylvania and threaten Washington, D.C., as well as uh, try and draw off some of the battles from being fought in Virginia because purely defensive battles were just going to destroy Virginia over time. Then we get to a little town in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg, and that is the real beginning of one of the biggest battles of all time, which we, excuse me, we really tried to set this up to be a one-shot, half-hour, hour episode, but it it deserves this much better. I was going to say, it's like we are at the point where the amount of setup that is needed to truly do Gettysburg justice is its own episode in and of itself. Yeah. Um, so that brings us to the lead up to the battle itself exactly so uh now that we've wrapped up the lead up to the lead up of the battle uh not as yeah i was gonna say i not as extensively as we could but enough to lay the groundwork to get the entire eastern campaign into 35 minutes give or take I think is a feat uh, <laughs> in and of itself. Yeah, big time. Comparable to that of Pickett's Charge. Ooh, that's so depressing. Yes. Um, regardless, uh, so Lee has entered Pennsylvania 
in order to basically scrounge for supplies mm-hmm. and take the um the war out of Virginia, yep. which badly needed to they needed a break. Yeah. Well, I mean, if your entire economy is based off plantations as well as market crops and farming, and if you've destroyed all the farms because you're constantly fighting wars, mm-hmm. it takes a little bit of a hit on Just Virginia's ability to make money and fund the war effort. Yeah. So, uh, Lee marches uh, north, and he arrives at a small town called Gettysburg, which had pretty much no note i think it had a shoe factory and that was the biggest thing that's what they had they had a shoe factory and the stereotype of all the southern soldiers not having shoes and walking with rags and ragtag uniforms Mm -hmm. and whatnot is entirely accurate that is exactly what happened yep um they were half starved um and were absolutely shoeless so that was the entire point in the first place, was to go to the shoe factory and try and gather up as many shoes as he could to keep his men in walking and fighting shape. Um, so this brings in the geography of Gettysburg itself. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a kind of divide in, a, I want to say, a mountain range... It's like a lot of big. It, it it's a small big, mountain range or a big hill. Big hills is is, is the entrance if yeah. you're coming up from the south. So there are uh, there's a divide between these two large hills, um, that kind of creates a narrow area which an army needs to march through, and if anybody knows anything about Thermopylae, that can be a problem. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening is a is he a Colonel Buford? No, he was General Buford. Was he a general? Yeah. So there, uh, there was he's a... He's the head of cavalry. Or yeah. like one of the heads of cavalry. Yeah. So General Buford was one of the Union's uh, cavalry scouts, more or less. Yeah. Maybe a little bit more. Maybe he, a like, little headed bit a, strong. Yeah, he headed course. a scouting party. Um, so he headed a scouting party that encountered uh, Lee's army, because they were trying to keep track of where Lee's army was. So they Lee's could, army was trying to sneak around. And they were trying to sneak around and sneak into... Um, Gettysburg, but they needed to go through these two hills to get it. Uh, General Buford should be remembered as one of the greatest heroes of the Civil Absolutely. War for this action alone. He had the foresight for two things, and the first was he could hold Lee's army where it was with his, I want to say he had... Uh, between a thousand and five thousand men to hold. I would say off. less than five thousand, definitely. Yes. But yeah, um, he had like a regiment or something. Yeah, so he had a or a couple had, of regiments. So he probably had somewhere of, along the lines of uh, a thousand to three thousand, yeah. give or take, men, who basically sat and held the entire yeah. dismounted cavalry. Is what North, they were. They were an infantry. Or, Virginia. Yeah, they weren't even like an infantry division. They were dismounted cavalry that was holding back. Division after division after brigade after regiment that the entire army was coming up. Yes. Lee's entire army, the Army of Northern Virginia. Yeah. Do you have any idea what the number was on the top of it? 30-something thousand, I feel like, is what they had. And we probably had maybe forty to 50,000. I think those numbers are fairly accurate. Yeah. I think that's uh, off the top of my head. We really should start preparing more stuff. I know. Actual notes and numbers. All right, so my numbers were wildly off. I will not guesstimate again. Um, 
the Union Army, the Northern Army of the Potomac, had about 100,000 to 104,000 that they say were, like, present for duty, active and accounted for. Um, and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia had, like, between seventy to 75,000. Their numbers there are a little bit more sketchy. So these are the total armies, um, yeah. the Army of Northern Virginia and the Army of the Potomac are like the whole cohesive army. Yep. At this point in time, Lee had kind of outfoxed his chasers and he had kind of taken a detour into Gettysburg from yeah. um, the west, whereas the Union wasn't quite sure where he was at this point in time. They really just stumbled into each other. Oh, very much. There there was no need for a great calamitous battle here. No. And one of the main reasons that happened is because Jeb Stewart, who was Lee's eyes and ears, went AWOL for like three days. We'll definitely get into that, but yeah. we should probably get back to Buford. That's fair. Oh, I love Buford so much. Yes, he is played by Sam Elliott in oh, the Gettysburg movie. Oh, he's the movie, best. Oh. And it's one of the few parts of the Gettysburg movie he's I fantastic. enjoy. His mustache, his cowboy hat, oh, he's perfect. Yes, he's awesome. But it's it's an accurate representation in that General Buford knew um, what he had mm-hmm. in his positioning. And he yep. knew that if he could hold them long enough, um, in this kind of defile between the two hills. Yeah, they had the high ground at the time. They, If they could hold. So they uh, they fought essentially a delaying yeah. action that um, literally just spilled into street fighting. Exactly. They were trying um, to hold Lee's army back long enough that the rest of the army of the Potomac could catch up, really. Yeah. So um, the Army of Northern Virginia is all 75,000 men are trying to come through this defile yeah. roughly at about the same time. Yeah. And it's just a choke point. Yeah. And Buford is using dismounted cavalry mm-hmm. against infantry mm-hmm. and cannons mm-hmm. to try and hold them off. And they literally have carbines, yeah. which are shorter uh, rifles meant for... Uh, horseback shooting. Or, yeah, like literally horseback, like shooting on horseback. Yeah. They're not meant to be a wall of bullets no. the way that the legitimate rifles of the Army of Northern Virginia's mm-hmm. infantry is laying into Buford oh, with. Yup. So under heavy casualties, mm-hmm. he holds off until, was it Reynolds? Yeah, Reynolds arrives with, I believe it was the 1st Division. Yes. So uh, General Reynolds was basically the star of the Union Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had he... literally been offered the command of the entire Army of the mm-hmm. Potomac and refused. Yeah, like right before this battle. Yep. That's... And they were debating whether, or I believe they were debating whether or not to offer to him again or yeah. promote him or something along those yeah. lines. But he literally, he was one of the few division commanders under Hooker and Burnside that consistently yep. like earned his yes. stripes. He was very much the most capable Union commander mm-hmm. up until this point in the East. And in tragedy of tragedies, he is killed in this first day of battle very shortly after his division comes up to support Buford. Yep. So uh, his division comes up to support Buford as the um, Army of Northern Virginia is spilling out um, into Gettysburg, the town itself. Yep. And they are slowing Lee's advance long enough, um, and that uh, long enough to keep him there while the um, Army of the Potomac mm-hmm. and the Union Army actually catch yeah. catch up. Yeah. Um, 
on the other side of Gettysburg, opposite to the area in which uh, Lee is trying to get through the town, there is a, a large field, and then on top of that is a series of hills. Yep. This is the wheat field? Yes. So there is a huge, you know, um, couple hundred yards of wheat fields, and then there are um, different... Uh, the series of hills, basically, if you're looking down on it from the uh, north to south, in the north, it's... Well, I should say, in its entirety, if you're looking down on it, it looks like a fish hook, mm-hmm. which is the classic phrase to describe um, the the series of hills. Uh, the If you picture the fish hook, uh, the... To the north is the actual hook. Uh, off to the west is the long line of the fish hook, and then off to the east is like the actual point of the hook. Mm-hmm. So, this is where the actual battle of Gettysburg will be fought. Yeah. Uh, there was a definitely some serious fighting in the battle of Gettysburg before that. On the first day, but in day two and day three, the real battle will be fought on these hills. Yeah, big time. So what Buford and Reynolds had realized is that they had found a perfect defensive position for the Union Army. Uh, A lot of Civil War tactics was based on artillery. Yeah. So, um, and this goes back to Napoleon. Oh, yeah. Which has, who has one of my favorite lines of all time, which is, God fights on the side of those with the best artillery. <laughs> um, we'll do a Napoleon episode at some point. Oh, we'll do more than one. We'll do a Waterloo episode. Yes. But we'll do, uh, we'll do a whole series on Napoleon. Um, but that's, that's kind of the age we're in. We're just past Napoleonic tactics. We're kind of in that new interim, um, getting into more modern warfare, mm-hmm. but... Uh, a lot of it is based on, um, like, height always matters. Yeah. Uh, and you yeah. still have these big blocks of men marching across some stretch of land, a lot of times under artillery fire, yep. trying to take that high ground. And that's where it's kind of uh, infantry, uh, cavalry is starting to fade out by yeah. this point. This is one of the last wars where um, cavalry will be a major player. But still, it is starting to yield to uh, the strength of infantry. Mm-hmm. So you need something to smash up infantry and make it softer so your infantry can beat them. And that is where cannons come into play. And we are st- we have rifled cannons at this point yeah. in time, so we don't have the smooth bore. They're becoming more... Uh, I always get this mixed up. Is it rifled is more accurate, yes? Yes, yeah, yeah. Cause, yeah, because it puts the, the spin on it. And yes, so... It kind of comes out straighter. Yeah. So, um, if anyone doesn't know, a rifle, the barrel of the gun is actually grooved on the inside in such a way that it will uh, spin the bullet. Or uh, if you have a rifled cannon, it will spin the uh, cannonball. And the spin, like a football, will make it more accurate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in Napoleonic times, and even in the Revolutionary War, we had um, smoothbore cannons. And they were wildly inaccurate. It kind of just like bounced da- bounced along kind of down the, the barrel, right? Yeah, it, it bounces. It makes it very inaccurate. Yeah. On top of um, 
uh, we didn't have uh, percussion, explosive right. ammunition. It was literally like you're just shooting a giant cannonball. Mm-hmm. Or like you're basically just shooting a bowling ball. Right. Whereas the Now the actual pe- cannonball will explode on yep. you and... Shrapnel is a lot more dangerous. Yeah, shrapnel's a thing. Grape shot. Oh, God, yeah. We've always had grape shot, but that's... This This is where, in this battle in particular, grape shot is very, very mm-hmm. real. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, in this mode of warfare, the importance of the high ground is multiplied it tenfold. Is crucial. It is. And that is what Buford saw. Is like, we've got the high ground. We have the opportunity to secure the rest of the high ground. Yep. Uh, and it's pretty much all of day one is the battle with Buford and then getting into position. Yep. Um, Lee uh, gives orders to get the armies through. Uh, his, his subordinates kind of, I don't want to say fail him. They a fumble bit. a bit. They uh, drop the ball a bit. So what happens at Chancellorsville, which is the battle that just happened recently. That yeah, we like a month and a half ago. Is um, his right arm, who was the brilliant um, division commander, was Stonewall Jackson. And Stonewall Jackson was killed. Yep. Um, and since he no longer had Stonewall Jackson to rely upon, he actually ended up uh, subdividing... Uh, his regiment into or his division into two other divisions um, because he wasn't entirely sure of uh, who he he couldn't quite feel that he could rely on any of them where he still had James Longstreet Mm -hmm. who was his other right hand he affectionately called his old war horse Mm -hmm. but then he also brought in Richard Ewell and A.P. Hill neither of whom he trusted completely and then neither of whom really shone on in the Battle of Gettysburg was A.P. Hull the one with one leg? No, that was Ewell. And that was part of Ewell's issue, is that yes. he was very cautious. And that's... So... He was, like, just very recently back. He had a wooden leg. He had yeah. lost his leg in a previous battle. Mm-hmm. And he had been a great, like, commander under Jackson. And that's... Yes, he came directly from a recommendation from right. Jackson. But he had lost a leg in a battle, and he... It, as, as a tragic, drastic wound like that will do, it had a little bit of an impact on his psyche... And he was not the aggressive commander that Jackson was and that Lee wanted. Yes. So uh, Jackson had spent the war with these two very reliable um, commanders Mm -hmm. on his team. And then suddenly he lost one of them. And has to make do with two new-ish commanders. For a major battle. Yeah, a, like... Everyone thought that this battle was going to decide the war. It may not end it completely, but if the South won a major victory in the North, Lincoln's approaching an election. Mm-hmm. It, we're, we're, we can say this is July of 1863. Lincoln's up for re-election um, in November, right? Yes. Yeah, he would have been up for re-election in November. So if they if the North had lost this battle... It was already set into motion that if the if Lee won, if he destroyed the army or won a major battle, the Southern government, the Confederate states, were going to present papers for a peace settlement. So Jefferson Davis and the Secretary of War, they had all of this stuff kind of laid out. Like, okay, if we win, we're going to put forward a peace treaty to just end the fighting now. No more hostilities. Let us go. We won't 
do anything more because Lincoln needs this victory if he's going to win re-election and he needs the victory in the West too. Um, so there, there is a big divide in Congress, um, along the lines of the Republicans and Democrats as ever. Um, and as always, yeah, the, uh, the, the Republicans want to continue the war and fight to the bitter end. The Democrats are open to peace. George B. McClellan is running as a Democrat opposing Lincoln right now. So if you guys remember, George B. McClellan was the first general that was in charge of, well, the entirety of the yeah, army. Yeah, he built the army. Um, but uh, he he had several failing um, deficiencies in, in battles, particularly yeah. at Antietam before he was sacked. And then we went through the entire... Uh, of yeah, commanders uh, of all the commanders, which I'm sure confused everyone. I'm gonna say we won't go through it again straight. for you. So right now, Meade's in charge. That's all we need to worry about. Yeah, we'll get into we'll get into Meade, but um, George B. McClellan is uh, pro peace, yep. even though he was in command of the army. He's a Democrat who's running against uh, Lincoln, and basically, people are thinking that Lincoln is not going to win. Yeah, they don't think that they can. The war has been going on for so long that people in the North are starting to give up say all right you know what the south wants gone fine let them go no like people are losing belief that they can actually win the war and that's um it, it people are starting to get more comfortable with the idea of a divided yeah union. Um, union um lincoln himself admits that he does not believe that he is going to mm-hmm. win he is convinced he is going to lose yeah so what uh, Jefferson Davis needed Lee to do was go into the North and deal another stunning defeat mm-hmm. um, to uh, the Union Army, which he had done time and time and time again. Yeah. What uh, ended up occurring is a disaster for Lee. Yeah. Um, and it could not have gone more wrong for him. So what the reason we bring up um, his uh, division commanders because it matters so much for personalities yeah. to understand who's facing off. Um, and it is very much uh, the, the three people that you really, really need to know for the South are A.P. Hill. Uh, what's Yule's first Richard. name? Richard. Richard Yule. Dick Yule. Yeah. Um, Richard Yule and James Longstreet. Yep. Uh, so it, these three guys, well, four, if you want to count, um, J E B Stewart or Jeb Stewart, Jeb Stewart. Um, those, those four guys are the only ones that you really, really should know for the Confederacy. Yeah. On the union side, um, after Buford, um, fought his delaying action. Then uh, Reynolds was killed. Yep. So it took time to move the Union Army up. Um, what ended up happening is uh, the remainder of Ewell's regiment, I mean, not Ewell's, excuse was... me, the remainder of Reynolds' regiment yeah. retreated to... Is it Corps? Might have been Corps. Yeah. yeah. I, think... I'm gonna, I always get confused. I'm going to use them interchangeably. Yeah. Uh, division um, against division mm-hmm. is probably the easiest way. Yeah. But there are regimental commanders, there are division commanders, and there are corps yeah. commanders. Um, so what ended up happening uh, is on the first day, uh, Reynolds's troop, without Reynolds, because Reynolds yeah. is killed, tragically, Yeah. 
uh, retreats to the fish hook. Mm -hmm. And Lee sees the fish hook and immediately tells Yule, go take it. Yeah. And this is on the first day. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where he could have. Easily. Yeah. It's, they, they weren't in place yet. They weren't dug in on the hill. All it would have taken is a couple of hard charges and hard pushes up the hill, and Yule could have taken the high ground. The argument is is that it wouldn't have taken a couple of hard pushes. Yeah, like is one, that it would have taken one. Maybe one hard push up the hill and you got to remember right you, off. you have 75,000 men. We'll, we'll say Yule is probably in charge of maybe 20,000. 20, 20, yeah, 15 to 20. Um, he has the men to go take the yep. hill and doesn't. Yep. He basically is afraid of the high ground. He understands what it can take to take mm-hmm. the high ground, but there are little to no serious artillery emplacements mm-hmm. here at this point yeah. in time. A little bit also can has been argued that it comes back on Lee a bit because the way he phrases his orders is very... If practicable, if you think you can do it, if it makes sense to you. And he's used to being able to do this because he would tell Jackson, well, if practicable, take that hill. And Jackson would interpret that order as, take that hill. Ewell interprets it as, if you think you can do it, take that hill. And Mm -hmm. Ewell doesn't think he can do it, so he doesn't. And that's, um, uh, and I will put the full blame on Lee for not making his orders clear. Yeah. And uh, I understand that he had been used to doing things a different way, but you need to adapt. Yeah. Um, he, you need to make your orders black and white. Yep. He did not make his orders black and white. The actual missive is take the hill if practicable. Yeah. Which le- which I think is fair for you all to say, like... It's not practicable. I'm not going to do it. If it is, if it wasn't practicable. Right. Which I The think- argument can be made that... I think it was. I think he was scared of his own shadow yeah. and wasn't quite sure whether or not um, it was going to be reinforced. Yeah. But this is a major point, and this isn't a small point in the battle, because this is a decisive factor. Yeah. The battle probably would have been won by the yeah. Confederacy if it had not been for yeah. that one moment alone. Yep. The Union was able to dig in. They were able to reinforce their lines. They were able to get everything set up the way that they wanted it to. And they definitively have the high ground. Big time. So, uh, what ends up happening is that, uh, is day one ends. Yep. As, uh, the Army of the Potomac is, uh, does a night march, I believe. Mm -hmm. To get everybody up and organized. To get everyone and organized. So, uh, we should probably talk about, is it, um, is it George Gordon Mead or is it Joseph Gordon George Gordon Mead. Yeah. G.G. Mead. it is, uh, George Gordon Mead is one of the, uh, better... And he's a Pennsylvania native. He's fighting on his home state. Yes. Um, Meade is the new head of the Army of the Potomac. And Meade is actually a, uh, I would say, a very solid commander. Mm-hmm. I would I would say, um, like, Sherman and Grant are definitely top tier. Yeah. Reynolds is top tier. You could argue um, Hancock. Yeah. Well... I don't think anything more needs to be said other than the fact that when Grant is elevated to command of all of the armies, west and east, he leaves Meade in charge of the Army of the Potomac. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, um, Meade is a very solid choice. Yes. Um, and I believe at Fredericksburg, he is one of the only men who actually holds his own 
along with Hancock, mm-hmm. and they actually, I believe, beat back um, Stonewall Jackson for a while. They just needed more support, yeah. which they were not given. Right. But they tactically, in the battle, had done everything that they could, have, yeah. and it ended up being a Union loss. However, mm-hmm. um, Winfield Scott, Hancock, and Meade were the two regimental commanders, mm-hmm. division commanders, however you want to yeah. um, put it. But they, but yeah. they, they were actively in charge of sections of the battle and they did exceptional for yeah, their sections yeah. this is fredericksburg fredericksburg yeah. yes yep um so um mead is in charge he brings up the entire army of the potomac to the fishhook yep and he starts lining his men up in defense on this series of hills and uh i believe is it culp's yeah hill? so the second day is mainly culp's hill and Cemetery Ridge. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what is the what's the ridge line that Lee sets his army on? Um, looking at the maps here. So, so on the second day, Lee for the most part is attacking up Culp's Hill. He's attacking across the Emmitsburg Road at Cemetery Ridge, mm-hmm. and they're doing some attacks at. What's the name? Where is Lee's? defensive positions set up he doesn't really have defensive positions where is but where is lee's headquarters there is a ridge line that is opposing um i I don't remember seminary ridge seminary that's it yep okay so i always get it cemetery and seminary ridge that's what i you said cemetery ridge and i was like i was pretty sure that's what he was but uh there is a, a cross Directly across from the fish hook, there is another ridge line on the other side of Gettysburg. Yep. So they have ju- uh, the the Confederate army has passed through the town. Yep, and they uh, they have reached the ridge and then across the road, yeah. um, up a couple hundred yards is where the other right. where the fish hook begins. Yeah. so on Seminary Ridge is where Lee sets up his defensive mm-hmm. position for the night. Yeah, and that's where Hill's Corps is yes. stationed. Um, Hill's Corps is there off to, I believe, the right is where Longstreet will form up, but Longstreet took... Um, for all, well, he was waiting for Pickett. Yes, Longstreet, um, one of his regimental commanders was... Um, George Pickett. George Pickett, who he was... As flamboyant of a southern gentleman as you can have. Oh, Yes. So, uh, Longstreet had been basically, like, the rear guard as, uh, they marched north. So, Longstreet's troops took longer to set Mm up. Um, if you can picture it in your mind's eye, uh, Yule is, uh, the far left, or in the west. Longstreet is bringing up the far right, or the east. And then A.P. Hill is in the center. Yeah, so it's like A.P. Hill, and then it's they're kind of in like a weird, they're not quite in a fish hook, but they're kind of in a weird crescent where A.P. Hill's in the middle, and Ewell's on one side, and Longstreet's on the other. So yes, um, Ewell is uh, basically on the far left, if you're looking down at Lee's um, mm-hmm. stations, and... Uh, Longstreet is the far right, and A.P. Hill is in the center. The concept of Lee's battle plan is... I can't even get into how flawed it is. It's like... 
the, the ideas behind it make sense where he's generally, he attacks one flank, finds it strong. He attacks the other flank and finds it also strong. And then jumping ahead for one second to the third day, he then attacks in the center. But it's very much every decision he makes apart from the broad kind of trying to test and figure out where they're weak, everything goes wrong. I would argue that the 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 tactics are are, are so fundamentally flawed. The strategy yeah. is good, but it is Napoleon at Waterloo once again. Uh, Meade has literally been in charge for three days. Yeah. So suddenly he's thrust into a real battle Mm -hmm. against uh, uh, one of the greatest commanders in American history. And so Meade's plan was very simply, we're going to dig in on these hills. And we're going to And we're going to, we're going to very much be as defensive as possible. And we're going to hold them. Yeah. Because the fish hook that the Union Army is on could not have been a stronger position in which to fight these tactics on and frankly it's, today if you were to yeah. fight a battle there it would be an extremely strong defense well, it's a massive role reversal too because for the literally the entire two years of war almost lee has always been the one on the defense and the union has always been the one attacking and just breaking like water on rock yep and now those roles are reversed and lee is the one who's going up the high ground to a dug-in opponent with cannons pointed down in his face it's uh lee is a superb defensive general when he is on the attack he does do a spectacular job there are several battles um chancellorsville was um definitely a um, more offensive stage battle but it is uh his his, meade's plan is just better yeah on paper i would say meade's plan is far better yeah um so part of the reason for Lee's failure is his lack of information. Yeah, Jeb Stewart's still who knows where. So, uh, Jeb Stewart, if you guys remember beforehand, is the the first half hour of us talking at you. Yeah, um, Lee's um, cavalry commander. So the Army of Northern Virginia's cavalry, which is several thousand strong and, like, renowned throughout the world as some of the world's best cavalry. It is southern cavalry. Those boys really know how to ride horses. They've been riding horses for longer than they can walk, most of them. Yeah. So uh, their cavalry ability is astounding. And their leading commander was a very young general who uh, was Jeb Stewart, who was your traditional uh, southern gentleman Mm -hmm. who, uh, you know, wore feathers in his cap and was all pomp and circumstance. Loved to see his name in the, uh, papers. papers. Um, and what had happened was he had gone too far away from Lee's army, basically raiding and, uh, getting his name in the papers. Yeah. Trying to, uh, being a blowhard. Yeah. Basically. Basically. Uh, Just a pompous ass. And uh, in so doing, allowed Lee's army to stumble into a battle that they were not looking for or prepared for. And they weren't entirely sure if they were coming up against the entirety of the Union army or, or just a section. Yeah, or just a core or two. So I will say that Lee's decisions can uh, certainly be accounted for by the fact that he had no scouts. Yeah. His scouting party disappeared. And yeah. He, and Jeb Stewart had been completely reliable and appeared genius yeah up until this point and then suddenly it's like 
they go days without hearing from him. Yeah, I want to say it's like three days they yeah. don't hear from him at all. Yeah. And you're supposed to be in constant say, I don't think he showed up until like the evening of the second day. I believe that's what it was, yeah. Um, and at that point, things are almost fully decided at that point. There's one last shot that Lee's going to take. No, I don't want to say it's evening of the second day. Or is it the day. evening My, of I the first day? I think it's the evening of the first day that he shows up. Because there's a massive cavalry battle that goes on at the tip of the fish hook. Okay. That um, Buford is part of. Okay, because they yeah. Bring so up then the it must cavalry. be, yeah, it must be like overnight into the second day that he shows up. Yes. So, um, and that's where we're, we're, we're ending the first day. We're starting the second day. Yeah. And that is where... Uh, Jeb Stewart finally meets up with uh, Lee, and Lee is angry, but does not berate him. Right. At least not in public. At least not in public. That was part of his persona. Yes. Is, you know, that kind of grandfatherly old man, I'm yep. not mad, I'm just disappointed. Yeah, that calm exterior. Mm-hmm. Not like Washington, who, if you piss him off and he blows up at you, you remember it. Yeah. Um. So, Lee's battle plan is to attack the fishhook. Yep. His subordinates argue significantly against this. Yeah. Longstreet um, hates every every bit of every plan. It's Longstreet simply says, We're on Seminary Ridge right now. We don't we at this point in time we're pretty sure we're facing the entirety of the Union Army. Yep. They've had time to dig in. They have a spectacular defensive position right now. Yep. They have the high ground and they have superior artillery. We need to go through open fields. To get to them. To get to them. Which is just, that's perfect for artillery to tear infantry apart. Mm-hmm. He very simply says, uh, basically what Longstreet says is that like, hey, we're in, a, we're in a great defensive place of our own right now. If we line up along Seminary Ridge and we make them attack us with their superior numbers, they have no attacking ability. Mm-hmm. The Army of the Potomac has shown time and time again that the Union leaders really aren't good at attacking. Um, but Lee wants to attack. But Lee wants to attack. And Lee believes, because of the amazing things that they had just done at Chancellorsville a few months before, that they could just march right through. They were. He, he believed his army was undefeatable. I wouldn't go so far as to say he, he had that magnificent belief. That's very much part of Killer Angels, where he just thought yeah. he had the army of God. Like, yes, that's I, fair. Yeah, it's I, like he, he, had, he, had a, he had wild belief in his boys, but I, I maybe think, not that crazy, I, crazy yeah, belief. I don't, I don't think he had a messianic belief that they were the one true army and all, all that stuff. I yeah. think that is uh, part of the, the... Fictionalization and the yes. dramatization of it. Uh, I Romanticizing. Yeah, I think that he simply just thought that they were superior infantry. He underestimated the Union ability. And up until this point, it's entirely fair. Yeah. He's had nothing to dis- dissuade him of that fact. They literally just brush away every Union battle. Yeah. It's the Union kind of falls apart under any sustained intelligent attack. Yeah. So, uh, Lee's idea... Uh, I mean, realistically, it's it, it's very um, comparable to a, just a good football game. Just sending out your running backs on the flanks, and then you're really just going to rush it right up the middle and run the ball. Mm-hmm. And But you make it very convincing that you're going to hit hard on the flanks. So 
Lee's idea was to, uh, it was actually the same as Napoleon's attacking Wellington in the Battle of Waterloo. It is, he is going to uh, put pressure on the flanks. So he was going to attack very hard uh, on the flanks of the fish hook at um, Peach Orchard. Yeah, and, the Peach Orchard and the Wheat Field. And, and uh, then at Little Round Top. And then at Little Round Top, as well as, um, is it Culp's Hill? I believe so. Um, so he's going to send Yule and Longstreet in to really hit hard on the Union flanks, mm-hmm. really just as a distracting measure. Yeah. If he if he can push through and crumple one of the Union flanks, fabulous. Yeah. But in reality, the main push and the majority is going to be a complete and utter obliteration up the center. And that is Lee's plan. Mm-hmm. Um, keep in mind, they need to march across open fields and then attack uphill. Mm-hmm. Idiocy. Yeah. So, what ends up happening, actually, is this disjointed, uh, ill-timed, yep. terrible attack, because Longstreet gets into a big fight with Lee, Yep. basically saying that this is dumb and you're going to get men killed. Mm-hmm. And Lee ignores him. And Longstreet, uh, after the battle, maintains that he knew exactly what was going to happen. Yeah. I think that might be overplaying it a little bit, but I think that Longstreet knew that it was a bad yeah. idea. And Longstreet was vilified in the South after the war because after Lee died, he published his like autobiography or his memoirs ripping Lee apart for some of the decisions that he made. And Lee is a god in the South. He still is. That's what, yeah, that's what I mean. Like mm-hmm. That man could do no wrong. Longstreet was a traitor for even thinking these things. Like, he mm-hmm. should have given him his full... Su- and, like, um, like, Gary Gallagher and some of the lectures we've listened to comes down pretty hard on Longstreet fairly because kind of the subordinate's role is to carry out the orders of their commander. And if you can't do that, you should... Relieve yourself of command. Right. Um, I, I, I go back and forth on where I fall on that. I genuinely believe that Longstreet, if he had resigned and said, I cannot carry out your orders... I think that probably would have rung um, Lee's bell enough. That maybe that he would he, have rethought. He, he might have reconsidered if, if Longstreet had threatened it. But at the same time, Longstreet wasn't going to sit on the sidelines no. like Achilles and let men die. Yeah. Because he was throwing a hissy fit. Right. So uh, what ended up happening is a combination of Yule's incompetence and Longstreet's just th- kind of throwing a hissy fit. Yeah. So, uh, Longstreet basically takes forever to get into position. Yep. I believe Lee tells him, attack at dawn. Yeah. Um, his artillery commander, Porter Alexander, um, basically said, like, we, we knew exactly where to go and what to do. Um, I actually really need to read Porter Alexander's account. Uh, by several accounts, mm-hmm. he is an absolute genius yeah. of artillery for the South on top I, of... Because I believe he was a... Very well-educated man, too. Yeah. Um, he wrote an account of yeah. the battle afterwards yeah. um, in his autobiography and wrote all about the war. And he is, his version is actually considered very, very accurate. He was an honest guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he openly criticized Longstreet. Yeah. Because Longstreet made He's the excuse of, you know, we had trouble finding the path. I only got my troops into position um, just last night. And it, all of these... Um, all of these things are basically, I would call, uh, excuses. excuses. 
Longstreet was waiting for Lee to figure out that it was a dumb idea. Yeah. Um, is kind of where I'm at. He's waiting for that last second recusal. Yeah. So, on the left, or on Lee's left, um, is uh, the the tip of the fishhook, and there's Culp's Hill there. And what ends up happening is Yule attacks just piecemeal and mm-hmm. ill-timed. What is actually supposed to happen is that Longstreet and Yule are supposed to attack simultaneously. Yeah. The intent is to draw off strength from the Union Center. Exactly. So you've got Yule fight attacking at Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill, mm-hmm. and you've got Longstreet attacking through the Peach Orchard, through the Peach Orchard, through what becomes known as Devil's Den. Yeah. Um, and up to the Round Tops. So uh, Yule's attack is ferocious, but he's literally just torn apart yeah. at this point in time. Um, his men are attacking very steeply uphill. Uh, a cavalry battle ensues on the far left, away from the actual hills themselves, mm-hmm. where Jeb Stewart encounters the Union cavalry, and this is the first time I believe that the Union cavalry um, doesn't lose. Nice. It's just flat out like just doesn't lose. That's they awesome. don't have a smashing victory. They just prevent, but they don't get cleaned off the field. Yes, they they don't get their clocks cleaned by the Southerners, which is why I love sheridan when he comes in later in the war um but uh so yule engages i believe jeb stewart engages at the same time uh long street takes longer and then we get to one of my favorite characters in all of the civil war because we're at the peach orchard dan sickles slimy bastard i love him i to, know. to read about he's a terrible person he's horrible a giant person asshole. so how murdered his wife's lover got away with it First known use of the insanity defense. Uh, yeah, so uh, what happened is, is that Dan Sickles, before the Civil War... He's a politician. ...caught his wife in bed with another man. He chased him out into the street and then shot him. In front of witnesses. In front of... Half Lots of dozen, people. Yeah, in, in the middle of the street. In, in New York, no less. Senator from New York or something. I thought it was in D.C. that he was at at the time. It might have been. It might have been while yes. they were in D.C. Because I believe he was senator from New York. Yes. So, so he is, he's they were very much a politician. Uh, One so, of those political generals who had zero reason to no, become a general. I so He did well for himself. I was going to say, I, Surprisingly will, so. I will defend himself in this battle. There are a lot of uh, historians that seriously question his decision of the defense of the peach field. I mean, peach orchard. But we really should discuss his history first, just to get in line for what a loony what this guy wackadoodle. is. Wackadoodle. He is... Uh, did he have a wooden leg? He does afterwards. He gets his leg blown off at the peach orchard. That's what it is. Okay. Um, Spoilers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, Dan Segal, uh, he... Is it, I believe it's after the war. He has an affair with the Queen of Spain. Yeah. Uh, he, she was like in exile in Brazil or something. Yeah, and he has a torrid affair with her. Yeah. Well, my uh, favorite thing is that he murders his wife's lover in the middle of the street, gets brought up on charges for it, and gets off with the first known use of innocent by defense of momentary insanity. Yes, it is temporary insanity. He basically said, like, hey, anybody in that position would lose their mind and kill yeah. somebody. And it and they, Yeah, and they were just like, yeah, right, fair. Um, absurd. Stayed with his wife, too, I believe. I don't think he divorced her. No, I don't think he did either. Um, but divorce wasn't heard of in those days. Yeah. So you never know. 
But um, he, during, as the war broke out, he was a political appointee. He had no business being in charge. He was just a smart guy, so they gave him... Yeah, they were like, they needed more draftees from New York, and they knew that Dan Sickles could get them, so they made him general of a regiment or something. Yeah. Um... Up until the war, I think it's pretty... Up until this point in the war, I think his his actual action is pretty quiet. He doesn't yeah, have a ton not of experience. A ton. Um, so what happens is, if you're looking down at the Union Army, the Union's left is the long handle of the fish hook. In the middle is the peach orchard. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, there's a break in the hills in which the hills are actually lower... Uh, in that one area where Dan Sickles was supposed to be in the middle of the line of the fish hook and the peach orchard is out in front of it. Yeah. The peach orchard actually has land that's a little bit higher than where he's at. So Dan Sickles, who had been in, I forget which battle, um, had basically uh, been on lower ground and gotten torn apart by, and his men had been torn apart by artillery earlier right because they were the confederates were able to get up on top of the higher hill so what ended up happening is uh dan sickles just said all right i'm gonna ignore orders and go take and that instead hill. of having a uniform line defensive line i'm gonna stick my ass out in front of everyone else yeah and i'm going to sit and defend the peach orchard which puts a massive hole in the union lines it is a massive hole he does not inform anyone no he just disappears he just disappears with his entire regiment which is, so now there's a hole in, yeah. the, in the Union left. And then he goes and gets his leg blown off and gets carried off the field. Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm going to actually say that I think this is probably a good idea. Uh, it's, it's tactically sound to me, which is take the high ground. His argument is the instant they got guns up there, they were going to blow a hole in my line yeah. and then there would be no going back. You gotta tell somebody though. Yes, but he had been strict orders, and I believe yeah. he brought it up to either Hancock or Meade, and they had f- flatly told him, stay in line, right. and he just ignored orders. Well, because I imagine they didn't have enough men to then connect up and back, and like that yep. weird little pimple off the fish hook. Exactly. So, uh, the... Rationale works. Larger... Yes. Well, the the reality is, is that um, the peach orchard... Um, just becomes a killing ground. Oh, it is awful. the first contact that the Union has with, with, Longstreet's, with Corps. Longstreet's Corps. And Longstreet just tears into them. Yep. That being said, they hold the line for they a do long well. time. Um, I don't know what the actual hours are, but it is, they withstand multiple um, charges from uh, the Confederates. I mean, it's like questionable but I, I still defend it yes but it's they hold for a while but it's still a disaster like sickles core is demolished it is it, it does not exist after this battle but would it have existed had they been uh, i don't know they stretched their lines so thin um hancock had to pull twenty thousand men off of other places to reinforce those lines because sickles made the the union defense line so stretched but did that stop the hammer of no i think sickles took the entire force of the hammer blow and that's what i'm talking about is he took the force of the hammer blow Mm -hmm. which means that the union actual line didn't have to take it to a point which i don't think was his intent but 
if you have uh you know a, a giant outcropping of rock in the, that's gonna hold back some mm-hmm. of the waves to a point but like hood and mcclaws who are two of Longstreet's division commanders they bypass um sickles entirely and focus on little round top and big round top mm-hmm. it's only um I don't remember his name, but Sickles takes some of the blow. He doesn't take the entirety of it. Like mm-hmm. Lafayette's, not Lafayette's, um, Longstreet's, because mm-hmm. his, his name is Lafayette McClaws because yeah. the Southerners are pretentious. Mm-hmm. Um, Longstreet unexpectedly runs into Sickles. So it, it is very much a surprise that kind of sends them reeling for a bit. But then they do kind of, they break on him. But then they go around him and start attacking behind him. Oh yeah, they um they definitely eventually envelop him, and that's why his casualties yeah. are so high. Yeah. But the momentum of the attack, yeah. in its entirety, is completely offset yeah. on top of the fact of Longstreet's delay. Yeah. So there's heavy fighting, and they nearly break through yeah. on the end of the line with um the Mister Chamberlain. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Yes. Of Maine. Mm-hmm. President of Bowdoin College. Yeah, I love him. Um, but yeah, so then Little Round Top, which has been my obsession since I was like 12, because I'm a nerd, in case you couldn't tell. Um, Chamberlain is the colonel of the 20th Maine, which is the extreme left of the Union flag. And it is very much instilled to him by his commanding officer, who was also a professor from Harvard, Colonel Strong Vincent, Whose first name is Strong, which just seems weird to me. Mm. Um, but is like literally kind of drummed into his head saying, hey, if you fold, if you break, the entire Union flank goes with you. You have to hold at all costs. To the last, I think are the words. And it's very much, well, to the last what? Um, and he does. He weathers attack after attack after attack by John Bell Hood. Um, Who's one of the more effective? Oh yeah, um, he's a very, very effective that. Confederate commander. Mm-hmm. He's again in, in Longstreet's division, mm-hmm. um, and they they weather the so many attacks to the point where pretty much the entire twentieth Maine is out of ammunition, and so Churchill, not Churchill, Chamberlain. Chamberlain. See now, those of you who have listened to our other Crash Course histories will understand that I'm getting confused with Neville Chamberlain and Winston Churchill of mm-hmm. British fame. Colonel Chamberlain leads a bayonet charge down the hill and basically just either captures or scares off the entire Confederate advance. And that's the end of the Battle of Little Round Top. But it is very much kind of the this one division that, in the grand scheme of things, maybe doesn't get a whole lot of attention. But they held that flank so effectively. And I love it. Yeah, uh, Chamberlain was awarded uh, the Medal Congressional of Honor. Medal of Honor. Congressional Medal of Honor. It was, uh, I, I just respect the hell out of it. Oh, yeah. Um, talk about a man with balls. He's literally down to, they run out of bullets and the mm-hmm. Johnny Rebs are still charging. Yep. And his reaction is, well, we're out of ammunition, so the natural order of things is to retreat. Yeah. And he basically like, he's like, says, we can't retreat. Yeah, we can't retreat. We would rather die than retreat yeah. at this point in time. And he is the, he's the epitome of the citizen, so, citizen soldier. He was a professor of theology and rhetoric at Bowdoin College in Maine. The war breaks out. He joins up, is given a commission as, like, lieutenant colonel in a regiment. 
and eventually rises through the ranks to be a brigadier general by the time the war ends. He's wounded like six times. At two separate occasions, he is shot through each hip. Mm. It's just this this man is fantastic. Uh, yeah, so um, the Union charge comes again. I mean, the... Um... Confederate. The Confederate charge comes again and uh, with uh, under Longstreet and uh, Chamberlain basically says, fix bayonets, we're going to charge them. Mm-hmm. And it was the last things that the Confederates expected. They expected the Union to crumble yeah, after this that's last what, charge. Yeah, because that's what it always happened. And that is what, frankly, should have happened. Yeah. And this is just kind of the most daring, balls-to-the-wall mm-hmm. commitment that he won the Medal of yeah. Honor and deserved it. Jeff Daniels played him in the movie. In the Gettysburg movie, and I love him. Uh, I don't particularly like Jeff Daniels, but he did a good job as mm-hmm. this character. He's really good in The Martian, too. That's true. So, uh, he... Uh, this is pretty much where, like, the reality of what ends up happening yeah. on the second day. Yeah. Is just the, the Confederate uh, attack on the flanks is repulsed. Yeah. After brutal fighting. Yeah. But the Confederates, though they might have even superior tactics, mm-hmm. are not, uh, the ground isn't with them. No. So they're fighting uphill and they're just getting torn to shreds mm-hmm. is basically what it is. With And they are dealing significant blows against the Union at the same time. Oh, yeah. This is pretty much where the second day ends, too. Yeah, that, that's uh, definitely the wrap-up of the second yeah. day is... Um, Lee is not able to make any significant gains, and nor is the Union able to make no. any significant gains. No. So Lee retreats back. Longstreet again um, beseeches. Pushes for yeah. a withdrawal or a re-strategizing yeah, anything. Yeah. Longstreet said, um, even, if we, even if you want to attack, let me go out to the extreme left. Right, or and mar- around Do a them. night march around the fish hook. Yeah. Because even if we Coming fight, behind them. Even if we fight them on even ground. Right. Then we'll be able to at least do something. Well, the we'll, idea too is that we can capture their supply trains. We need those. We can cut off their route of escape. Basically. Catch them in the... Every, catch them with their pants down. Yeah. Every single uh, possible solution mm-hmm. to the problem that Lee has that are better than the ones he produces. No, because the one he comes up with is horrendous. It is... The third day is monstrous it's awful it is it, it, it's the last day it is and it is july 3rd <sighs> the symbolism here is also key because lee was very much wanted to defeat the union army on the 4th of july or by the 4th of july because uh-huh. he, he saw the symbolism in that so it's july 3rd lee I, I I would love to put it up to gallant stupidity <laughs> is probably how I would term it. And it's very simple. And Lee has suffered horrendous losses. He can pull back to a better defensive position. He can retreat and have the uh, army, uh, the Union army dislodge itself. Instead. He goes for a frontal assault. He he tries to blitzkrieg a prepared entrenched center. Up o- over... A, a mile, a full mile of open ground, no cover whatsoever, and then they got to climb over fences, and then they got to climb a hill. And the entire time, they are under the guns of the Union Army. 
So. And who gets the honor of this charge? Pickett. Poor Pickett. Uh, if you ever hear of Pickett's charge, this, this, is, what this is it. Yeah. He, he leads, I don't know how many thousand. It's his entire um, division. He, yeah. he sends uh, his entire I division. I want to say it's 10,000 plus, yeah. give or take. I want to see if I can find that um, number. It is Pickett's charge is just it's it's a forlorn, sad, symbolic moment for yep. the South, and it is this just gallant stupidity. Yep. And they are just torn to shreds. Funnily enough, we talked about Porter Alexander, who is probably the South's greatest artilleryman. We got to mention the Union's artillerymen, though. The Union artillerymen um, and probably the most successful artillery commander of the Civil War is Henry Jackson Hunt, who revolutionized the use of artillery, is like genuinely acknowledged by both sides as a genius. He purposely withheld firing ammunition yeah. on the second day because he noticed the massing at the center of Pickett's troops. He knew he needed to have some left over. He uh, purposely would not fire until Pickett's charge began because he predicted Pickett's charge. Yeah. And he saw the mile-long open field as literally just artillery practice. And then the Union unleashed holy hell as Pickett began his charge. Mm-hmm. Um, Pickett charged, funnily enough, they did actually, the wave broke the Union line briefly yeah. in the center yeah. before reinforcements came to reinforce it. Um, Winfield Scott was uh, injured by a cannonball, I believe, that fell. No, no, he was... It was that second day. No, so Winfield Scott was, it was either a bullet or shrapnel or something that went through his saddle and into his groin. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. So if, I, it, it might have it been shrapnel, shrapnel from a cannonball, but it yeah, was shrapnel. the big and, thing was that it took pieces of the saddle and embedded them in his abdomen, mm-hmm. and like the wound troubled him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, Winfield Scott would actually go. It uh, was a hero of the yeah. Civil War, and would actually go on to uh, run as a presidential candidate unsuccessfully a couple of times. Yep. Yeah, I don't think he ever got. He might have gotten the nom- as far as the nomination, but yeah, I think he ran against Grant at one. He point. did. Yeah. yeah. Because I think Grant was running on the Republican ticket and Hancock was running on the Democratic ticket. I think is how it worked. Um, It is... uh, It's just... It's a bloodbath. Pickett's charge is known as a bloodbath. Yeah, Pickett's entire division is destroyed. Yeah, it is wiped out. He's recorded as saying, like, at the end of the battle that he has... He doesn't have a division anymore. Yeah. It is uh, just a... He just blitzkriegs the center, basically. And it's, there's no tactical genius behind it. There's nothing. And they briefly break the Union line, reaching a, a, a high point on um, one of the hills. Yeah. And it's, after that, it's just obliterated. Yeah. So um, the, the battle is officially It's basically lost. over. Yeah. Um, there are a few more small um, skirmish actions, yeah. but... Uh, eventually, uh, Lee pulls him Realizes, back. Realizes, pulls him back. They escape back over the Potomac into Virginia. Meade fails to follow them, which is the one, the one drawback, really, of his leadership in this battle is that he did not kind of... And this is something that Lincoln had had an issue with with a lot of the Union commanders is they didn't take that next initiative step to finish off 
the and army. Uh, but the Meade's same... argument is that they'd taken a whopping and needed that's the rest. That's uh, just the, it cannot be overstated, the psychological factor yeah. that Lee had on yes. the Union Army. Yeah. And they just genuinely believed that they didn't know what was going to happen next. So they didn't think that Gettysburg was three days. Yeah. They thought Gettysburg was going to come, uh, Gettysburg, or I should say Lee was going to come through and attack a fourth time. Right. Um, they didn't know that the battle was over yet. Yeah. Um, Lee charge surprised them. Yeah. Uh, aside from Hunt, it did surprise them. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, Lee did not immediately retreat. He eventually retreated. Um, yeah. And that wasn't something they expected. Lee was someone who remaneuvered. He mm-hmm. strategically moved around. He didn't full out retreat he would disappear and then pop up where you least expected him yeah and it's very simply he's like the bogeyman yeah it's just uh lee is just so his army is like completely i don't want to use decimated because decimated is overused but they're demoralized for sure for sure it's just uh huge chunks of his army are smashed it is um it is the biggest battle on U.S. ground in U.S. history. However, the single day for the worst casualty number comes to Antietam. Yeah. But the the, the fighting on Gettysburg... Um, All told. ...is, is yeah. the largest. Yeah. It is... It was like 20,000 plus men on on each side. It, yeah, I believe I think it's something like 50,000. The casualty numbers for killed come to almost 50,000. That's not included wounded or missing. For comparison for modern audiences... 50,000 is the number of people that were killed in Vietnam. In total. For the U.S. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's this is over a course of three days. I was going to say, this is three days. So that's the scale in which we are talking about yeah. for numbers. Yeah. Uh, Lee retreats. He makes it over the Potomac. Um, Meade fails to follow up, but Meade had only been in charge for three days yeah. before Gettysburg. I don't blame him no. as much as others do. Though um, even Grant was critical of him yeah. for this. But it writes an end to um, southern attacks yes. in the north. Yeah, they, the south does not invade the north again during the war. The, that, the fighting is confined almost strictly to Virginia in the eastern campaign. So this, uh, basically, this is the last gasp yeah. of the Confederacy. What ends up happening immediately afterwards... Um, is the news of Vicksburg surrender, which yep. is the the fort that basically holds the Mississippi, and once the Union has hold of the Mississippi, they can go all the way down to Louisiana. Yep. Um, and it's a huge market of trade. So the the Southern War effort is effectively smashed mm-hmm. because of the fabulous news of these two victories. Um, they drag it out for two more years, but yeah, it's 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 two it's two hard fought years, but. The uh, the Confederacy actually had been trying to be recognized by the French and the English. Yeah, and after Gettysburg and Vicksburg, any yeah. hope of that disappears. Yep. After so many military victories, the the British Crown actually seriously considered recognizing the Confederacy. Yeah, um, partly had, because they had such a massive market for Southern cotton. Yep, and that and but um, the aversion to to be associated with a slave country. Yeah. Queen Victoria was on the throne in England at this time, and Prince Albert, her husband, was violently opposed to slavery. He was on various, like, committees and boards, so. Um, 
But yeah, the the twin victories basically yeah. fit into that. Um, had the British come in on side or at least supported even mo- mm, monetarily or, or anything, with yeah. supplies is by the British Empire, it probably would have tipped the scales. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the sing it's just the this the significance of this battle is drastic. Yeah, in every it cannot be overstated. Um, any final notes on Gettysburg? No, I think that's a pretty comprehensive undergo of it i'm sure we definitely forgot pieces here oh yeah i'm sure we misstated things here and there but again amateur historians um yeah and we're not taking this very very seriously itemized this is off-the-cuff conversations yeah this is layman's history yeah and that's what it's intended to be um any questions any comments any concerns that you guys have lay them on us yeah please hit us up in our comment section you can dm us uh, follow, we now have a new Tumblr page. Uh, follow us on Instagram at the Enlightened Pod. We are also on Tumblr under the same name. Um, Pod is our name on Facebook. We do have an Enlightened Podcast. Follow Grip. Um, any way, shape, or form you can follow us, please continue to spread Send us the word. Some emails if you have questions or reviews or mm-hmm. recommendations about stuff you want to hear from us. Yeah. Um, I'll, topics I'll, you want covered. I, I will probably end this with um, recommendations for um, books to read. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say um, James M. McPherson's um, Battle Cry of Freedom is genius. Killer Angels is an excellent novelization of the Battle of Gettysburg. Yep, it's Michael Shara. Um, and, uh, I would say avoid the Gettysburg movie at all costs. No, it's fantastic. It's not. It's amazing. It is. If, if only for the soundtrack. Oh, the soundtrack's glorious. Yeah, that's fantastic. If you really want Martin Sheen to play Robert E. Lee, which is the silliest shit I've ever seen of all time. It's fantastic. I'm also, I'm also going to recommend Stephen Sears' Gettysburg. That was a very, very comprehensive. It's. A tome, I will tell you that. It only deals with the Battle of Gettysburg and it is very much like dives deep into it. But if you're looking for that, Stephen Sears Gettysburg is really good. Uh if you know, the hour and a half that we've done uh, <laughs> isn't enough take, for you. Isn't enough for you and you want a more comprehensive professional study, um Professor Gary Gallagher does an entire lecture series on the Battle of Gettysburg alone, where he does several hours comprehensively going through each part of the battle mm-hmm. and it's brilliant it's fantastic it's posted I on youtube you can go watch it anytime yep absolutely fantastic all right but okay. yeah uh what's our email again it is um the enlightened pod at gmail.com all right send us a note let us know what you think Thanks for listening to the Enlightened Podcast. We are brought to you by Anchor, a subdivision of Spotify specifically for podcasting. Not only can we be found on Spotify, we can also be found on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or frankly, anywhere you can find a good podcast. We can also be found on Instagram and Facebook. We're working on getting a Snapchat together. And in the meantime, you can DM us any questions, thoughts, concerns, or just a review. We've gotten more than a couple so far, and they've been overwhelmingly positive, not to brag, but we're pretty happy about that. So if you have any other thoughts or opinions, please 
feel free to let us know. And in the meantime, like and subscribe for more content.